Chapter Thirty of the Boy Scouts' First Campfire. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Boy Scouts' First Campfire by Herbert Carter. The mystery solved. Conclusion. There! Exclaimed Tad, as he panted for breath after his supreme effort which resulted in the toppling of the boulder over the mouth of the rocky retreat of the two desperate characters. If only there is no other way out, I reckon we've got these birds safely caged till the officers come. Well, remarked Smitty, who actually had some color in his usually pale cheeks, and whose blue eyes were sparkling with excitement. From certain things they let fall when they were conversing, Tad, I am of the opinion that this is the only exit as well as entrance to the place. Smitty had been fed on big words and very exact language so long that as yet his association with other boys less particular had failed to rub away any of the veneer. In time, no doubt, he would fall into the customary method among boys of cutting their words short and saving breath in doing so. Yes, remarked Tad, smiling broadly, and from the way you can hear those two fellows on the other side of the stone carrying on, I guess you must be right. For they seem to be angry, I take it. You don't think they could upset this rock, do you? asked Smitty, a little anxiously. Not in a thousand years, without crowbars to help them. There they stay, till we get ready to invite them out. When the officers come, they'll find a way to do the trick, never fear, Smitty. But how do you feel about taking a trip across to the camp right now? Smitty started, and turned an anxious face out to the water, where the waves were still running fairly high, though the wind had died down. "'I will do anything you say, Tad,' he replied with a sigh. "'Even if you never swam fifty feet in your whole life,' remarked the scoutmaster admiringly, for the pluck of the tenderfoot appealed to him strongly. "'But make your mind easy, Smitty, for I don't want you to swim this time.' "'But, Tad, how else can I go?' pursued the other. We have no boat. I never did learn to walk on water, you see, and so far my wings haven't sprouted worth mentioning. So how can I get over to our camp? Why, I didn't think to mention it to you, and I really haven't had the chance to tell the truth. But I happened to discover where those men hid our boat in the bushes, as I came along the trail you left. And Smitty, while I think of it, I just want to say that was a clever dodge of yours, making all the mess you could with your shoe every time you came to a patch of dirt. It helped me a heap and saved me a lot of time. Smitty fairly glowed with pride. A compliment from the scoutmaster was worth more to this boy than anything he could imagine. I don't know what made me think of that, Tad. It just seemed to pop into my mind, you see. And I'm delighted to hear you say it helped some. As to my going over to the camp in the boat, I'm ready as soon as we can launch the canoe. While I have had only little experience in a boat, I've managed to pick up a few wrinkles, and ought to be able to get ashore safely. What do you want me to do, Tad? Explain the situation to the others, and then have Alan and Bob White paddle over. Yes. Stephen might as well come with them to take the boat back again, for the officers will need it when they arrive. The canoe was easily carried down to the water, and then Smitty, with a few directions from his chief, started across. He managed very well, though once Tad had a little scare, thinking there was going to be an upset. 
In due time, Smitty was seen to land, with the other boys crowding around, doubtless plying him with eager questions. Shortly after the boat started off again, this time holding Allen, who plied the paddle with wonderful skill, Bob White, who might have done just as well if given the chance, and Stephen. When they reached shore, Tad breathed easier. If the two men should break out now, there would be four stout fellows to oppose them. But all the same, no one was anxious to have such a thing happen. The boys had brought something to eat along, and they all sat down to have a bite. Everything was quiet inside the old bear's den. Bob White said he hoped the rascals had not been smothered, and Tad declared they could get plenty of air through the crevices between the rocks. On his part, he was secretly hoping that the fellows might not be able to cut their way out before help came. The time dragged slowly. Again and again did some impatient fellow ask Tad to look at his watch and tell him how much longer they must wait before the officers might be expected. As the westering sun sank lower and lower, Tad himself began to grow anxious and could be noticed listening intently every time the faint breeze picked up for it was now coming exactly from the quarter whence the assistance they expected would come. There, that sure was an auto-horn tooting, he exclaimed, about half-past four in the afternoon. Every one of them listened, and presently, sure enough, they agreed that it could be nothing else, though the loon out on the lake started his weird cry about that time, as though he considered it a challenge from some rival bird. "'Get aboard and pull for the shore, Stephen,' ordered the scoutmaster. And as he had been expecting this, the long-legged scout pushed off. They watched him paddling, and when he had almost reached the spot where Spitty and Bumpus, together with Davy Jones, stood, a car came in sight, loaded with some four or five men in blue uniforms, giraffe, and another wearing ordinary clothes. Stephen brought two of the officers and the extra man over and then went back for another pair, while Tad talked with the chief of the Feversham police, and the man whom he recognized as the guest they had given a cup of coffee to at the time the owner of the bear claimed his property. The story was soon told, and it thrilled the scouts as they had seldom been stirred before. It seemed that the two men were notorious counterfeiters, known to the authorities as Bill Dahlgren and Seth Evans. They had been surrounded by officers a month before, at a place where they were engaged in the manufacture of bogus half-dollars, but had cleverly managed to escape with some of their dyes and other material. One of them had been injured in the fracas, accompanying this failure to catch them at work. Since then their whereabouts had become a matter of considerable moment to the authorities at Washington, and one of the cleverest revenue officers was put on the case. He had disguised himself, and hiring the owner of the dancing bear, had gone around the country trying to get trace of the men, one of whom he knew wore a shoe with an oddly patched sole. This gentleman, Mr. Alfred Schuster, assured the scouts that they were entitled to a heavy reward offered by the government to anyone giving information leading to the capture of the two bold rascals, and he declared that he would see to it that this amount was paid into the treasury of the Cranford Troop of Boy Scouts, as they had certainly earned it. When the big rock was finally rolled away, with the aid of heavy wooden bars, the trapped men came meekly forth when ordered. All the fight seemed to have been taken out of them, 
Indeed, the one with the lame leg declared he was glad that he might now have the assistance of a doctor, for he had of late begun to fear that blood poisoning was setting in. In the place, plenty of evidence to convict the two men was found. So by degrees, everybody was ferried over to the camp, Bob White taking turns with Allen in wielding the paddle. Afterward, the big auto whirled away, taking the wretched prisoners as well as their exultant captors along. Then the camp of the Silver Fox Patrol settled down once more to its usual peace. Until late that night, however, the boys, unable to sleep after all this excitement, sat around the blazing campfire talking. From every angle the story was told, until each fellow knew it by heart. And all united in praising Smitty for the part he had taken in the capture of the men for whom the officers of the law were searching. For two more days the scouts remained in camp, and during that time many were the things Allen and Tad showed them. No one ever missed the real scoutmaster for a single minute. And when the hour arrived for the tents to come down, since the wagon had arrived to bear them back home, the eight members of the patrol united in declaring that they had had the time of their lives, and did not care how soon the experience might be repeated. On the way back, Tad ordered a halt at the identical spot where the little spring bubbled up and ran away with such a cheery sound. While the fellows were drinking and sitting around, Tad called the attention of them all to some peculiar sort of fruit the small tree close by seemed to be bearing, in one of the lower crotches, where three limbs started out, forming a sort of cup. "'Why, I declare, if it isn't my compass,' cried Stephen, turning very red in the face, as he eagerly reached up and secured the little aluminum article. "'Yes,' said Tad severely. "'I saw you put it there carelessly when we were all here.' and said nothing at the time, for I wanted to teach you a lesson. And now, all the time we were in camp, you've been accusing Bumpus here of losing or hiding your compass. I think you owe him something, if you're a true scout, Stephen. You're right I do, said the other, jumping up and hurrying over to where the fat boy sat, his eyes dancing with delight over being cleared so handsomely. And right here I want to say that I humbly apologize to Bumpus who is the best fellow in the whole lot. I hope he'll forgive me, because I really thought he was playing a joke on me. You will, won't you, Bumpus? I was just a silly fool, that's what. Maybe you were, Stephen, said Bumpus calmly, as he gingerly accepted the other's hand. And I hope that this will be a lesson to you, as our patrol leader says. When a scout gives his word, he expects it to be believed, Stephen. But it's all right, and I hope you find right good use for that fine little compass when we get off on that trip into the Blue Ridge Mountains. And at that, every scout snatching off his campaign hat gave three cheers, as though right then, with the coals of their first campfire hardly cold, they were looking forward with eagerness to another outing that would bring new adventures in its train. End of Chapter 30 Recording by Richard Kilmer Rio Medina, Texas. End of The Boy Scouts' First Campfire by Herbert Carter.